Section 107 of Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, Greenland, and the Search for the Poles. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World Story, Volume 8, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, Greenland, and the Search for the Poles. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 107 in Antarctic Winter Quarters, 1908 through 1909, by Sir Ernest H. Shackleton. The British Antarctic Expedition, led by Sir Ernest H. Shackleton, pushed on to within 111 statute miles of the South Pole. This expedition had well profited by the experiences of its predecessors. It was provided with Manchurian ponies, an automobile specially built for journeying over the ice, and a settling gas plant, a printing press, a supply of books, and a store of food carefully planned to provide a thoroughly healthful nourishment in a small bulk. Indeed, so far as previous arrangements could make it, this journey was, compared with the earlier expeditions, a truly luxurious pilgrimage. The Editor The inside of the hut was not long in being fully furnished, and a great change it was from the bare shell of our first days of occupancy. The first thing done was to peg out a space for each individual, and we saw that the best plan would be to have the space allocated in sections, allowing two persons to share one cubicle. This space for two men amounted to six feet six inches in length and seven feet in depth from the wall of the hut towards the center. There were seven of these cubicles, and a space for the leader of the expedition, thus providing for the fifteen who made up the shore party. One of the most important parts of the interior construction was the dark room for the photographers. We were very short of wood, so cases of bottled fruit, which had to be kept inside the hut to prevent them freezing, were utilized for building the walls. The dark room was constructed in the left-hand corner of the hut, as one entered, and the fruit cases were turned with their lids facing out, so that the contents could be removed without demolishing the walls of the building. These cases, as they were emptied, were turned into lockers, where we stowed our spare gear and so obtained more rooms in the little cubicles. The interior of the dark room was fitted up by Mawson and the professor. The sides and roof were lined with the felt left over after the hut was completed. Mawson made the fittings complete in every detail, with shelves, tanks, etc., and the result was as good as anyone could desire in the circumstances. On the other side of the doorway, opposite the dark room, was my room, six feet long, seven feet deep, built of boards and roofed, the roof being seven feet above the floor. I lined the walls inside with canvas, and the bed place was constructed of fruit boxes, which, when emptied, served like those outside for lockers. My room contained the bulk of our library, the chronometers, the chronometer watches, barograph, and the electric recording thermometer. There was ample room for a table, and the whole made a most comfortable cabin. On the roof we stowed those of our scientific instruments which were not in use, such as theodolites, spare thermometers, dip circles, etc., 
the gradual accumulation of weight produced a distinct sag in the roof which sometimes seemed to threaten collapse as i sat inside but no notice was taken and nothing happened on the roof of the dark room we stowed all our photographic gear and our few cases of wine which were only drawn upon on special occasions such as midwinter day the acetylene gas plant was set up on a platform between my room and the dark room we had tried to work it from the porch but the temperature was so low that the water froze and the gas would not come so we shifted it inside the hut and had no further trouble four burners including a portable standard light in my room gave ample illumination the simplicity and portability of the apparatus and the high efficiency of the light represented the height of luxury under polar conditions and did much to render our sojourn more tolerable than would have been possible in earlier days the particular form that we used was supplied by mr morrison who had been chief engineer on the morning on her voyage to the relief of the discovery the only objectionable feature due to having the generating plant in our living room was the unpleasant smell given off when the carbide tanks were being recharged but we soon got used to this though the daily charging always drew down strong remarks on the unlucky head of day who had the acetylene plant especially under his charge he did not have a hitch with it all the time flexible steel tubes were carried from the tank and after being wound round the beams of the roof served to suspend the lights at the required position a long ridge of wire rope was stretched from one end of the hut to the other on each side seven feet out from the wall then at intervals of six feet another wire was brought out from the wall of the hut and was made fast to the fore and aft wire these lines marked the boundaries of the cubicles and sheets of duck sewn together hung from them making a good division blankets were served out to hang in the front of the cubicle in case the inhabitants wanted at any time to sport their oak as each of the cubicles had distinctive features in the furnishing and general design especially as regards beds it is worth while to describe them fully this is not so trivial a matter as it may appear to some readers for during the winter months the inside of the hut was the whole inhabited world to us the wall of adams and marshall's cubicle which was next to my room was fitted with shelves made out of venestacasis and there was so much neatness and order about this apartment that it was known by the address number one park lane in front of the shelves hung little gauze curtains tied up with blue ribbon and the literary tastes of the occupants could be seen at a glance from the bookshelves in adam's quarter the period of the french revolution and the napoleonic era filled most of his bookshelves though a complete edition of dickens came in a good second marshall's shelves were stocked with bottles of medicine medical works and some general literature the dividing curtain of duck was adorned by marston with life-size colored drawings of napoleon and joan of arc adams and marshall did sandow exercises daily and their example was followed by other men later on when the darkness and bad weather made open-air work difficult the beds of this particular cubicle were the most comfortable in the hut but took a little longer to rig up at night than most of the others this disadvantage was more than compensated for by the free space gained during the day 
and by permission of the owners it was used as consulting room dispensary and operating theatre the beds consisted of bamboos lashed together for extra strength to which strips of canvas were attached so that each bed looked like a stretcher the wall end rested on stout cleats screwed on to the side of the hut the other ends on chairs and so supported the occupants slept soundly and comfortably the next cubicle on the same side was occupied by marston and day and as the former was the artist and the latter the general handyman of the expedition one naturally found an ambitious scheme of decoration the shells were provided with beading and the venesta boxes were stained brown this idea was copied from number one park lane where they had stained all their walls with condy's fluid marston and day's cubicle was known as the gables presumably from the gabled appearance of the shelves solid wooden beds made out of old packing cases and upholstered with wood shavings covered with blankets made very comfortable couches one of which could be pushed during meal times out of the way of the chairs the artist's curtain was painted to represent a fireplace and mantelpiece in civilization a cheerful fire burned in the grate and a bunch of flowers stood on the mantelpiece the dividing curtain between it and number one park lane on the other side of the cubicle did not require to be decorated for the color of joan of arc and also portions of napoleon had oozed through the canvas in the gables was set up the lithographic press which was used for producing pictures for the book which was printed at our winter quarters the next cubicle on the same side belonged to armitage and brocklesherst here everything in the way of shelves and fittings was very primitive i lived in brocklehurst portion of the cubicle for two months as he was laid up in my room and before i left it i constructed a bed of empty petrol cases the smell from these for the first couple of nights after ricking them up was decidedly unpleasant but it disappeared after a while next to brocklehurst and armitage's quarters came the pantry the division between the cubicle and the pantry consisted of a tier of cases making a substantial wall between the food and the heads of the sleepers the pantry bakery and storeroom all combined measured six feet by three not very capacious certainly but sufficient to work in the far end of the hut constituted the other wall of the pantry and was lined with shelves up to the slope of the roof these shelves were continued along the wall behind the stove which stood about four feet out from the end of the house and an erection of wooden battens and burlap or sacking concealed the biological laboratory the space taken up by this important department was four feet by four but lack of ground arrow was made up for by the shelves which contained dozens of bottles soon to be filled with murray's biological captures beyond the stove facing the pantry was mckay's and robert's cubicle the main feature of which was a ponderous shelf on which rested mostly socks and other light articles the only thing of weight being our gramophone and records the bunks were somewhat feeble imitations of those belonging to number one park lane and the troubles that the owners went through before finally getting them into working order afforded the rest of the community a great deal of amusement 
i can see before me now the triumphant face of mackay as he called all hands round to see his design the inhabitants of number one park lane pointed out that the bamboo was not a rigid piece of wood and that when mackay's weight came on it the middle would bend and the ends would jump off the supports unless secured mackay undressed before a critical audience and he got into his bag and expiated on the comfort and luxury he was experiencing so different from the hard boards he had been lying on for months roberts was anxious to try his couch which was constructed on the same principle and the audience were turning away when suddenly a crash was heard followed by a strong expletive mckay's bed was half on the ground one end of it resting one end of it resting at a most uncomfortable angle laughter and pointed remarks as to his capacity for making a bed were nothing to him he tried three times that night to fix it up but at last had to give it up for a bad job in due time he arranged fastenings and after that he slept in comfort between this cubicle and the next there was no division neither party troubling about the matter the result was that four men were constantly at war regarding alleged encroachments on their ground priestley who was long suffering and who occupied the cubicle with murray said he did not mind a chair or a volume of the encyclopedia britannica being occasionally deposited on him while he was asleep but that he thought it was a little too strong to drop wet boots newly arrived from the stables on top of his belongings priestley and murray had no floor space at all in their cubicle as their beds were built of empty dog biscuit boxes a division of boxes separated the two sleeping places and the whole cubicle was garnished on priestley's side with bits of rock ice axes hammers and chisels and on murray's with biological specimens next came one of the first cubicles that had been built joyce and wilde occupied the rogues retreat a painting of two very tough characters drinking beer out of pint mugs with the inscription the rogues retreat painted underneath adorning the entrance to the den the couches in this house were the first to be built and those of the opposite dwelling the gables were copied from their design the first bed had been built in wild storeroom for secrecy's sake it was to burst upon the view of everyone and to create mingled feelings of admiration and envy admiration for the splendid design envy of the unparalleled luxury provided by it however in building it the designer forgot the size of the doorway he had to take it through and it had ignominiously to be sawn in half before it could be passed out of the storeroom into the hut the printing press and typecase for the polar paper occupied one corner of this cubicle the next and last compartment was the dwelling place of the professor and mawson it would be difficult to do justice to the picturesque confusion of this compartment one hardly likes to call it untidy for the things that covered the bunks by daytime could be placed nowhere else conveniently a miscellaneous assortment of cameras spectroscopes thermometers microscopes electrometers and the like lay in profusion on the blankets mawson's bed consisted of his two boxes in which he had stowed his scientific apparatus on the way down and the professor's bed was made out of kerosene cases everything in the way of tin cans or plug topped with straw wrappers belonging to the fruit bottles 
was collected by these two scientific men morrison as a rule put his possessions in his storeroom outside but the professor not having any retreat like that made a pile of glittering tins and colored wrappers at one end of his bunk and the heap looked like the nest of the australian bower bird the straw and the tins were generally cleared away when the professor and priestley went in for a day's packing of geological specimens the straw wrappers were utilized for wrapping round the rocks and the tins were filled with paper wrapped round the more delicate geological specimens the name given though not by the owners to this cubicle was the pawn shop for not only was there always a heterogeneous mass of things on the bunks but the wall of the dark room and the wall of the hut at this spot could not be seen for the multitude of cases ranged as shelves and filled with a varied assortment of notebooks and instruments in order to give as much free space as possible in the centre of the hut we had the table so arranged that it could be hoisted up over our heads after meals were over this gave ample room for the various carpentering and engineering efforts that were constantly going on murray built the table out of the lids of packing cases and though often scrubbed the stenciling on the cases never came out we had no tablecloth but this was an advantage for a well scrubbed table had a cleaner appearance than would be obtained with such washing as could be done in an antarctic laundry the legs of the table were detachable being after the fashion of trestles and the whole affair when meals were over was slung by a rope at each end about eight feet from the floor at first we used to put the boxes containing knives forks plates and bowls on top of the table before hauling it up but after three had fallen on the unfortunate head of the person trying to get them down we were content to keep them on the floor i had been very anxious as regards the stove the most important part of the hut equipment when i heard that after the blizzard that kept me on board the nimrod the temperature of the hut was below zero and that socks put to dry in the baking ovens came out as damp as ever the following morning my anxiety was dispelled after the stove had been taken to pieces again for it was found that eight important pieces of its structure had not been put in as soon as this omission was rectified the stove acted splendidly and the makers deserve our thanks for the particular apparatus they picked out as suitable for us the stove was put to a severe test for it was kept going day and night for over nine months without once being out for more than ten minutes when occasion required it to be clean it supplied us with sufficient heat to keep the temperature of the hut sixty to seventy degrees above the outside air enough bread could be baked to satisfy our whole hungry party of fifteen every day three hot meals a day were also cooked and water melted from ice at a temperature of perhaps twenty degrees below zero in sufficient quantities to afford as much as we required for ourselves and to water the ponies twice a day and all this work was done on a consumption not exceeding five hundred weight of coal per week after testing the stove by running it on an accurately measured amount of coal for a month we were reassured about our coal supply being sufficient to carry us through the winter right on to sledging time as the winter came on and the light grew faint outside the hut became more and more like a workshop and it seems strange to me now thinking back to those distant days to remember the amount of trouble and care that was taken to 
furnish and beautify what was only to be a temporary home one of our many kind friends had sent us a number of pictures which were divided between the various cubicles and these brightened up the place wonderfully during our first severe blizzard the hut shook and trembled so that every moment we expect the whole thing to carry away and there is not the slightest shadow of a doubt that if we had been located in the open the hut and everything in it would have been torn up and blown away even with our sheltered position i had to lash the chronometers to the shelf in my room for they are apt to be shaken off when the walls trembled in the gale when the storm was over we put a stout wire cable over the hut burying the ends in the ground and freezing them in so as to afford additional security in case heavier weather was in store for us in the future end of section one o seven this recording is in the public domain